and welcome to the Grower Radio Network. I'm Matt McClellan. I'm here with John Peter Thompson, a member of the National Invasive Species Council's Advisory Committee, as well as Maryland Invasive Species Council, on which he represents the Maryland Nursery and Landscape Association. He's also a fourth-generation nurseryman and teaches a course called Introduction to Horticulture and Sustainable Landscaping for non-native speakers of English. Thanks for being on the podcast again, John Peter. Thank you very much for having me here. Of course. Now, we're following up on our previous podcast on invasive ornamental plants, and this this time we're going to focus on the plants of Southern California. So, tell me, John Peter, why should growers care about invasive species in terms of ornamentals in Southern California? Well, what a great question. So we're focused on the nursery and landscape industry, which uh, sells plants that its customers want. And that's always a hard thing to explain to some land managers. The nursery industry doesn't force plants on anybody. It's there to respond to demand. The problem is some of the plants that the consumers are demanding, um, the plants themselves are demanding on California's environment. Um, They cause problems for farmers when they get loose in a field. Uh, Think of them as weeds in an agricultural field and uh, everything from crowding out harvests, uh, eliminating the ability of cattle, for instance, to to forage, uh, lowering nutrition. Uh, Invasive ornamentals can escape into natural riparian areas. Wow, fancy word, riparian. Along stream beds and rivers. And if I don't miss my guess, um, California is having a little bit of a water problem, and the last thing it really needs are uh, greedy little East Coast plants that suck up all the water. Another problem with uh, invasive ornamentals that get loose, they, they jump the garden fence, if it will, they, they interfere with recreational use of, of the land, whether you're out uh, bird watching or whether you're hunting, uh, fishing, whatever it might be that you're doing, some invasive species that we're going to mention, I believe, today, um, can reduce the enjoyment and use of natural resources. So in the end, not only are they affecting Southern California's uh, ecological systems, they wind up costing Southern Southern California money. And it's not just Southern California. This holds true anywhere in the world, and since we're talking about the United States, anywhere in the United States. Invasive plants cause environmental damage, harm, and they suck up resources. Ultimately, the resources translate into they suck up money. So if they're sucking up the water, they're costing Californians, and if they're doing it in the Great Plains, they're costing the Great Plains money in terms of no water. You're going to have to find the water somewhere, or nutrition, or lack of harvest. So invasive plants cause economic as well as aesthetic harm. And the last thing is invasive species around the world are second only to human disturbance in their impact on biological diversity. Invasive species, one of the traits uh, that, that characterize an invasive plant is its tendency to form what I call a biological desert, or a monoculture is the term of art. They make dense stands, they alter the uh, hydrology, and they alter the 
the structure of the soil. They change pH, they change nutrient availability, and they do it by thick stands that crowd out any other plant life. And as soon as that happens, then you have no insect life because most invasive species are not preyed on by native predators. And once you get rid of the insects, you get rid of the animals. So no amphibians, no birds, and basically you're at a biological desert. So that's the simple crash course. Okay. Okay. So, so what are some of the ornamental species that are invasive in Southern California that growers <coughs> should be worried about? Sure. Um, well, I am proud to say that I was born in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, however, I'm also proud to say that I've spent most of my life um, in an area one-twelfth the size of California, Maryland, and so I had to do a little bit of research uh, to make sure I knew what I was talking about. And I was stunned to find out that uh, most of Southern California's problems are our problems back here in Maryland. Sometimes we call ourselves Little California because of our legislative initiatives. Um, so just looking at a list, right at the top of all Southern California lists that I could find is what I call Shade Kudzu here in the Washington, D.C., Lower Chesapeake. Seems to be a big problem for California. And while I've identified this as a Southern California, I believe from what I'm looking at that this is pretty much a West Coast problem, and it's the old buddy English ivy, Hetera helix. English ivy is a Eurasian plant. It came over with uh, European settlers and colonists to the East Coast. It traveled with pioneers and is a historic mainstay of Western European landscaping. It's, it's one of the backbone plants in the landscape industry, and it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. I remember being outside of Sacramento maybe 10 years ago um, on a tour, and much to my amazement as uh, most of the tour buses looking at this wonderful native plant landscaping at the top of the hill, I was at a house about halfway down, the owners had evidently gotten tired of mowing a very steep hill, and then it looks like they tried to terrace it, and that was a problem. So they simply planted English ivy that uh, had crowded everything else out. Their entire front hill to their house was English ivy, and it had climbed up the palm trees, which were dead. They were the only dead palm trees. Now, I don't, I'm not making the claim, you know, correlation does not make causation, but it was interesting that of all the palm trees in that neighborhood, the only two that were dead were the ones with the English ivy on them. I, I hesitate to say it was the English ivy. Of course, the trees could have been dead, and then the English ivy went up. But there was nothing else in the landscape. It was just English ivy. Back here, I like to tell people we landscape with English ivy because you can dr drive a bus over it <laughs> repeatedly. When in Washington, D.C., when you're looking for something to plant near a bus stop, you plant English ivy uh, because our metro buses don't have to watch where they're going. They can drive right over it, and people can loiter in it, and you cannot kill it. There is a reason that it's on the invasive list in California. <laughs> um, it's indestructible. Interestingly enough, uh, this is a problem across the United States. It's not unique to California. English ivy spreads but that's not really how it escapes from the landscape. Once it climbs a tree, it forms uh, actually a trunk, 
and in its adult form, it blooms way up in the trees where you usually don't see the white flowers, has little red berries that birds love, and then, of course, they spread it around. So English ivy is a, is a problem, problem plant. Now, the interesting thing is just because it's a problem plant with, with a, um, a bad reputation, it is solving problems. So, so the landscaper is caught in, a, in a, a little bit of a problem here of, well, what do I sell? There are recommended native alternatives. Um, one of them is Heuchera macantha, which um, is on the California wildlife, Fish and Wildlife site as a native alternative. So English ivy uh, probably want to get out of selling that plant. Another one to avoid is another East Coast favorite, uh, pampas grass. We plant it on the East Coast because, well, wow, it's, it's this uh, five to seven foot fountain in the front yard and it's just glorious. And Maryland is just about the northernmost tolerance. You get above the Mason-Dixon line, our winters usually knock it back. And in fact, our winter this year may have knocked it back. Zone 7 is its upper limit. It's a fantastic ornamental plant, specimen plant, uh, because it makes this huge fountain. Um, if you've seen ornamental grasses, just imagine it coming up and then billowing over, and the plumes look like sprays of water. I can't emphasize how grand it looks. The problem is it doesn't stay in its little circle in the middle of the driveway. Um, and in California, it just sort of hops, hops right out. It was introduced, uh, according to my research, in the 19th century, so California has had it around a long time. But it really takes advantage of disturbance. That is, as the cities have grown in the suburbs and exurbs, more and more natural systems have been crunched up, and the seed of this particular grass is able to get a hold and take off. It's drought tolerant, so of course it's out-competing um, other plants, especially now with some of the little problems. It's pretty indestructible. This is the problem. When it escapes and there's nobody to take care of it, it's crowding out the other grasses uh, or other plants because it can form dense patches. There are native grasses uh, that you could consider um, trying to find something that's native or at least something that isn't so readily able to reseed itself uh, beyond the landscape, the managed landscape. I want to mention, as I've mentioned, English ivy and now pampas grass, a lot of these ideas are trying to bring English landscapes to Southern California. So let's see, you've got England, an island up in the Atlantic, misty and rainy, and and definitely not the reason you move to California. <laughs> no. So it's always the question of why would you try to bring the English landscape, the beautiful English and Scottish Highland landscape to the Mediterranean climate. Well, it's because our magazines have spent a hundred years showing these great English gardens and everybody feels, well, we need to transplant that. I say, move back to Massachusetts. Oh, probably going to get me into trouble. <laughs> okay, so pampas grass. If you're growing it, beware, be careful, think about something else. Another, um, this time a tree, is another East Coast uh, problem. 
Uh, this one is Ilanthus altissima, tree of heaven. The interesting history on this plant is when it was introduced before the American Revolution in Pennsylvania, it was among the most expensive plant you could buy because nobody knew how to propagate it. I, I'm telling you, we're talking, you know, thousands of dollars to buy one plant in current in today's money, um, and it took them about a generation to figure out how to propagate it. It then became, in the 19th century, on the East Coast, the poor man's plantation drive tree. So if you didn't have a lot of money and you weren't the fourth generation on a plantation and you didn't want to wait around for the oak trees to actually get 60 foot tall and make this beautiful alley, you planted tree of heaven. We actually have uh, descriptions from the man who designed Central Park of uh, on-the-fly cheap landscape trees. So by 1850, it was already easily propagated, and it has now escaped all over the mid-Atlantic east coast, west of the Appalachians. This is a, a everywhere-to-be-found urban solution for designers, landscape designers in cities. Why? Because it's tolerant of concrete, hot pavement, foot traffic. It, it, in fact, it grows anywhere. You find it growing in the cracks of deserted buildings. It'll come up and help bring the building down. So it's a favorite in the mid-20th century for city planners who wanted a road with shade trees. Well, as you by now understand, this tree doesn't stay, not only does it love concrete and macadam and foot traffic and bus traffic and anything you can throw at it, because you aren't going to kill it, it doesn't stay put. It moves by stormwater, it moves by animal traffic, it moves by people planting it in the suburbs, um, and it just loves to find a little creek bed, stormwater place, anywhere where water is flowing. Then it really kind of takes off, forming dense thickets. Uh, and once it's not in the managed urban setting, and even there it's really bad news, you, you've got a plant sucking up water and sucking up space and eliminating biologic diversity. I think our listeners can hear me say this plant's got all kinds of positive stuff going for it because as a nurseryman you can guarantee it for like several lifetimes yeah yeah <laughs> That's exactly what the problem is <laughs> trying to control it is extremely costly once it gets going it is a terrible control problem think of it as an environmental weed of the first rank um, don't think of it as, wow, I can warranty this, and I don't have to worry about fixing that into my, my markup. Sure, yeah, these indestructible plants. <clears throat> One of the things that happened in the 20th century in our nursery industry was a movement, especially after World War II and in light of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, to offer our customers, uh, we called them low-maintenance plants, so that was the first thing. Low maintenance, meaning you could follow Rachel Carson and not apply pesticides. So they were low maintenance because they didn't die. They were tough as nails. And on top of that, they rarely had any predation. There was no predator, no fungus, no disease. And so we advertised in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even today, you know, buy this plant, you don't have to spray, you're being green. So we tell our customers, buy this tree of heaven because 
No bug eats it. You don't ever have to spray it. Don't have to worry about watering it. Don't have to feed it. And you can run over it with a truck. Those are great sales pitches. I guarantee this, you know, through three lifetimes. What a great thing. Except it doesn't stay put. If you could hire a gardener who could deflower it, every flower, and make sure it never went to seed, and you had a a glyphosate clause in your will such that when you died somebody killed it, then perhaps it is a great tree, but then it's no longer low maintenance. You know, in keeping with that, Russian olive is another ubiquitous invasive throughout the United States, and here it is in Southern California. And if tree of heaven is a problem when it gets along a river bank, then this tree is a real problem. Russian olive is uh, all over the Confederacy, and so it must have, uh, you know, followed the railroads. Uh, came out in the late to late 19th century, early 20th century. Again, a beautiful, indestructible tree with lots of ornamental value, but it doesn't stay put. It gets out, and once it's out in a natural area, um, very, very hard to control. Um, expensive read expensive um one of the websites i was looking at said a native alternative is valley oak so this california native who's been gone so long isn't able to comment on quercus lobata but um various sites that i've gone to suggest that this is an alternative so i'm going to trust the sites and maybe your listeners will uh, get a hold of you and tell you whether i was right or wrong or what they think about that particular option absolutely now, not everything is a tree that's a problem. I was interested to find that here's a plant that we grow, uh, Vinca Major. Uh, I, so, I sell it as an annual because the frost kills it. So for us out here in Washington, D.C., when we need a blooming annual, Vinca Major, um, big-leafed Vinca, it grows in hot, full sun. You can, It's takes a lot of abuse. You can almost never feed it. It's just perfect. And we know that our heavy winters will kill it. Well, it turns out that um, for you in Southern California, this is a big no-no. Uh, you do not want this plant native to Africa gets loose. Um, while it has a great look to it in the garden, once it gets loose in a natural area, it, it makes um, huge, dense infestation, mats, and really crowds out uh, other plants. And I noticed that it not only grows up into your foothills and the mountains of California, but down into the desert. And as you get to desert ecosystems, you have fewer and fewer, you know, the diversity is so unique and so precious. And then you introduce something like this that forms a dense mat and just crowds everything out. This is probably not a good choice. Uh, I found it interesting. This is an example where invasive species like politics are local issues. Because it's a problem on the East Coast doesn't make it a problem necessarily in California and vice versa. That's why having a national law would be so tough. Okay. I probably got in trouble with some of my colleagues. (laughs) (laughs) Once more, California has so much more, like Scotch Broom which is a big, big deal. And I know this is a West Coast deal. This is not just a Southern California, uh, but the entire coast, probably up into British Columbia, if I remember correctly, uh, another plant that 
if you're growing, I'd ask you to ser do some serious research and ask, is it the proper plant? Should you be telling your customers of other options? Another grass, uh, fountain grass, which we sell as an annual out here in the East Coast, uh, because we know, yeah, it'll reseed, but our heavy winter kills. Uh, it was 14 degrees this morning here in Maryland, just outside of Washington, D.C. This uh, uh, Penicetum cetaceum is not going to survive. Mm -hmm. But in Southern California, well, you, you're, you don't get 14 degrees extended, um, so you're going to have a problem. Um, there are so many more. I couldn't believe <laughs> the invasives go on and on, and, and a lot of that is because the Mediterranean climate of Southern California, the very thing that makes California uh, the vegetable, uh, what do we want to call it, the vegetable sink. Where do vegetables and fruit trees grow? Of course, now my Florida listeners are going to be unhappy, but... <laughs> California supplies the vegetables. The very reason that the Central Valley in agriculture is so good and the temperatures are so perfect, just to add water, if you've got water, is why many, many of these Eurasian and um, non-indigenous landscape plants have made it from Eurasia, made it from Africa to the East Coast, and then zoomed right across the Transcontinental Railroad and with the pioneers and established themselves in Southern California. The good news is for nurserymen, there are great sites, um, easy to use. I'm going to take some of this back to the East Coast. Uh, and they, there are alternatives. It's not a question of being stuck. It's a question of working with your customers and educating them on there are alternatives that will work and having California landscapes for California instead of Maryland landscapes in California. So are there, are there maybe, maybe one or two more that you would want, that you think we should well, cover that we, that we haven't covered yet? Well, I didn't mention ice plant, which I remember uh, I used to grow perennials, uh, very proud of uh, my ability to grow perennials in pots. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I got a hold of ice plants, um, and I thought this was really an exotic kind of plant. And it was a little tough to grow here in Maryland because of our heavy clay, and it doesn't like um, our wet, wet winters. It kind of rotted off. Uh -huh. uh, and I see that it's a major, major problem in um, California, along highways uh, um, and escaping into natural areas. I thought that was kind of interesting because, if you had ice plant here in the wrong place, it's probably dead this year. Right. Um, Mexican feather grass is a plant that I've, I only know uh, indirectly, sometimes as a greenhouse plant, and not very much of one. Um, but then yellow flag iris, um, uh, that, that's a plant that's under question out here on the East Coast, too, but in the 80s was a staple of perennial gardening, and I see it appearing on California lists. So so the the amount of species that overlap is significant and then there are particular ones and i want to remember remind people that i've just talked about terrestrials if you're selling aquatic plants you have another no-no plant that was introduced uh, sort of along with kudzu you'll love that water hyacinth um a great great plant for ponds and aquatic features until, of course, it gets into storm drains or into your natural lakes and resources, 
and you haven't tried water skiing until you try it in a pond covered with water hyacinth. Huh. We'll probably pick water hyacinth up again if we do Texas or um, you know another region because it's it's a real popular nuisance when you are in the nursery business selling aquatic plants. Customers love it. They love it because, well, it'll cover their whole pond in, a, in one growing season, and uh, they're not too worried what happens when it gets into the swimming hole next door. Right. I was, I was reading about that, actually, on the plantright.org site, and it said that the, uh, the seeds for water hyacinth could, can live for 15 to 20 years. Yeah. Like that. The seed banks are a big problem. Invasives, not all of them, but quite a few of them have um, ex- seed banks that, you know, 5, 7, 10, 15 years out, which accounts sometimes for the inability to control. You go in, you wipe the whole plant out, and three years later it's back. That's because you've got a seed bank to deal with. Um, nurserymen know this because most weeds have seed banks. Okay. If you think of an invasive plant as an ecological or natural area weed, you will have no problem understanding why it's so expensive. It's just a weed. Mm-hmm. You know, a rose, a hybrid tea rose growing in a uh, and you've got a strawberry field and you've got a number of hybrid tea roses or climbing roses that decide to grow in the strawberry field, no matter how beautiful they are. The strawberry gardener is not going to be, farmer is not going to be excited. That rose is a weed. If he had corn growing in his strawberry field, he'd be annoyed. And of course, the corn farmer doesn't want either the strawberry or the rose because it's taking things away from his production. We got into trouble in this whole conversation about invasives when we labeled some plants weeds and some plants invasives. Now, I'm making a personal statement. It would have been much better to call weeds weeds. Okay. A rose in a cornfield is a weed. The wrong place, the wrong plant at the wrong time in the wrong place. That's an invasive species. That's what a weed is. And I'll close with, there are no bad plants. Plants are neither good nor bad. They're plants. It's how we use them and how we see them and how we deal and respond to them that assigns a value. A plant, any species, is neither good nor bad. It just is. It gets a value assigned to it by us as humans. We assign the value. Excellent. Okay. Well, John Peter, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Great. Look forward to another segment. Uh, Maybe we'll do the Pacific Northwest next. I think that's a great idea. And if any of our listeners have ideas for areas to cover, regions to talk about, please let us know. Shoot us a note. And if you want to talk directly to John Peter, you can go to his blog. Just do a Google search for Invasive Notes or find him on Twitter at Invasive Notes. Thanks again for your time today, John Peter. Great. Always a pleasure. And thanks again for listening to the Grower Radio Network.